Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. Uh, this is Brinkley Seen, and Brinkley 17 can be summed up in two words, industrialization and the middle class. That's not two words. You know what? I, I credit myself for being more, uh, more involved in history than math, so I'm going to keep that in there. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Brinkley 17... Uh, we're really shifting away from Reconstruction we're, uh, and kind of shifting towards um, Northern policy and Northern, um, I guess, business uh, ideas and infrastructure and uh, really helping out the North because the North has a lot of power at this point. The South just lost a war. Uh, they just lost a ton of lives in the war. Um, they don't have a lot of political power. A lot of, or well, they're not going to have um, a president in office until Woodrow Wilson. So that's going to be, uh, I believe that's the night or nineteen. I believe it's nineteen twelve, uh, which Woodrow Wilson's elected. Um, so it's going to be about, um, again, math. I hate math. Um, that's about forty years of uh, one-party control. Uh, the Republicans have pretty much complete control over uh, the presidency uh, and therefore uh, the Supreme Court. Um, and then uh, they're heavily favored in the House and Senate elections. Um, and so this kind of leads to kind of the North being the major power in the United States and just kind of dragging the South along as their younger, more racist brother. Um, <laughs> um, and so a lot of Industry and change happens uh, in the North at this point, um, especially after the tariffs and the Homestead Act, and just general economic progress and economic um, ideas being spread around the North, which help them uh, kind of grow into a more or a more larger power. So there's the Bessemer process. I am definitely not pronouncing that correctly, um, but it's kind of this invention of steel uh, by blowing air into molten iron. You can make steel. And obviously, as we know today, um, cities run off steel. And so it's kind of the uh, pre-city age where people are slowly shifting from a more rural agricultural lifestyle like Jefferson wanted um, and kind of a more industrial, more factory-based um, life. And so we definitely see that with people like Rockefeller who grows, um, well, who, who creates Standard Oil, and he kind of grows to be this face of monopolies and just absolute power um, through things like his corporations. Um, and so you see people dominating these fields. Uh, Henry Ford is another good example with the car industry, um, and he creates the assembly line, which uh, kind of blows up his cars. Well, not literally blows up, blows up his car factories, um, <laughs> economically speaking. Um, and so there's kind of this big explosion of corporations, and you see this idea of horizontal and vertical integration. Horizontal integration is like the combining of small businesses to create one mega corporation. So you're thinking like Walmart, McDonald's, like a lot of small businesses together um, create this one big chain as like a whole. Um, and then vertical is kind of like this idea of owning the way to build it. So 
instead of you know buying your steel or buying your coal and then buying your iron and then making the steel yourself and then selling that uh to say a railroad company for them to build railroads you um are a mining company who mines the coal who mines the iron who makes the steel and then builds the railroads and makes their profit off of that whole thing you own the entire chain and that's why it's called vertical um, integration you're integrating the entire process of making something into your entire company um, and that definitely blows up again metaphorically speaking um, kind of in the post reconstruction early 1880s 1890s era um, and so kind of new ideas new philosophies about wealth because so many people own wealth at this point um, it kind of creates this gospel of wealth idea that the rich are responsible to help their own communities and to help others and basically spread their wealth um, more evenly and invest in public infrastructure and public ideas to help everybody out because they're more privileged than everybody else. Um, it's kind of like a democratic socialist socialist idea um, philosophy, but it's not really... I mean, it's definitely present today, um, and it, it's but it's kind of more a um, preface or a preface to kind of the more socialist, progressive side of America, which we're going to see in the 1910s, 1920s, uh, with a lot of change and kind of a more union-based socialist idea of America. The Socialist Party, kind of in the 1910s, gains a lot of traction. I think they end up winning. Five to six percent of the vote in America, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about it, one in twenty people in America is a lot of people, um, and that's a few House seats, uh, perhaps a Senate seat here and there, uh, but that's kind of their max peak at that point. Um, and so we kind of had these three ideas at this point: philosophies uh, between Ward, George, and Blamey. Uh, these three writers had different takes on monopolies, economics, nature, um, and they were all like political writers, political speeches, or crafted pro political speeches to try and push their ideas of how should the rich be. Because at this point, uh, with monopolies, with people like Rockefeller and Ford, they're gaining mass sums of wealth. They're gaining uh, tons of influence without actually getting any from the public, unlike the president, unlike a senator, unlike a Supreme Court justice. Their wealth is just theirs. It's not owed to voting or any like um, any like single campaign or issue or idea. They're just wealthy people who have power because they're wealthy. Um, and it's very difficult to take away that wealth because they can buy politicians and they're pretty much untouchable by a lot of people, which brings us to kind of the pushback to this, which is monopolies um, and unions. So monopolies got big. Obviously, uh, people like Rockefeller, people like Ford, I know I keep talking about them a lot, but they're like mentioned a thousand times throughout this whole chapter, so I feel like it's necessary. Um, <clears throat> so these people own monopolies. They own a lot of money. They own a lot of influence. Uh, their workers are getting um, nothing, pretty much. They're getting the equivalent of a few pennies, um, and they're really, they're not getting paid for what their economic output is, and so 
this idea of unions and this idea of working together to fight against the the wealthy class, the upper class, the the greedy uh, the greedy rich who pay politicians to try and keep everybody else down, uh, unions start to pop up. Uh, strikes start to pop up, and labor unions start to pop up, um, all to try and basically get the middle class to rise and get the middle class to um, have some sort of power over these growing wealthy elites. Um, and I think it's important to note at this time that the United States doesn't have a minimum wage. A minimum wage is going to come with, I believe it's President um, Roosevelt, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt in like the 1940s. He establishes the $1 minimum wage. So at this point, no one has a minimum wage. Um, you're not even really guaranteed uh, to work or to get money for working. And uh, child labor is, of course, very rampant and rampant at this time. And so uh, we see a few big events. We see the railroad strike of 1877. Uh, protesters all over the nation uh, go on strike uh, as they build railroads, particularly the Transcontinental Railroad and the expansion of that. Um, and this turns uh, into riots, into bloodshed, and it's considered America's first major uh, labor conflict. Um, because, of course, the wealthy elite, they need people to work, uh, and if people don't want to work, you're going to have to force them to work uh, through violent methods at the time. And so, kind of in, re in a response to this, we have the Knights of Labor, uh, who stood with the middle class unions, and particularly they stood... Um, uh, they stood for women being in the in the workforce, and they stood against uh, child labor, low wages, and monopolies. Um, all of which sounds pretty reasonable at this point in time in 2022. Uh, sounds completely normal, um, but it's massive change. I mean, women don't have the right to vote. Women don't really have the right to drive, really have the right to do much of anything. Um, and so to say women have the right to work is a big deal at this at this point in time um and then we have some more um riots strikes uh we have the haymarket um i guess explosion police are fi or police fire on protesters and one throws a bomb and a lot of police and civilians die i believe this happens in chicago if i'm not mistaken although i don't have it written down so um probably worth a google but hard to say um, as I'm recording this right now. Um, we also see the the homestead strike um, due to some wage cuts. Despite being promised higher wages, uh, they get, uh, the workers get wage cuts and they strike. And then um, the wealthy uh, call in some guards, and um, a lot of people are killed in the standoff between the guards and the uh, strikers. There's the Pullman strike. Um, uh, transport stop. Transport workers go on strike, and so you know trains, public transportation basically stops. Um, and in twenty seven, or and this all happens because the monopoly at the time, the monopoly over public public transport, cuts wages in pretty much the whole United States. Uh, they cut wages in twenty seven states, and so uh, public transport workers go on strike and they basically just ground the country to a halt in terms of public transport. 
Um, and kind of with this idea of more, a more industrial life, a more extravagant city life, uh, we have this idea of uh, the beginning of the age or the city age, where people are uh, moving to the city to work in factories, work in industrial plants, um, maybe work in coal mines outside of the city, but they still live inside the city. So people are more packed together. People are living in factories more. Um, but that kind of goes more into like Brinkley 18, Brinkley 19. Um, and so, you know, I'm not going to go too far into that, but this is really like the big, excuse me, uh, this is kind of more the beginning of uh, industrialization. The United States is at this point uh, very wealthy, uh, despite being, you know, relatively poor throughout the Civil War and really uh, pre-Civil War. Um, the United States is really beginning to grow into a massive powerhouse, a massive economic powerhouse. And with that, they're going to grow into a more uh, militaristic powerhouse and a more uh, political powerhouse with, as we see, t as we see today and as we saw post-World War II, um, the United States policies and politics really impact the rest of the world. Um, and so with that, I think that's all I wanted to talk about with uh, Brinkley 17. I think the biggest thing to remember is that they kind of class a war between the ultra-elite and the wealthy, or the ultra-elite wealthy business owners and the um, poor, honestly, not even middle class, lower class, um, who are kind of in a perpetual cycle of strikes to get uh, more wealth, more equality and then get pushed back uh, through these wealthy elite basically are untouchable because um, bribery, stealing, just general corruption with money and wealth and power. Um, and so I think that's pretty much everything. And so I hope you learned something new, and I hope to see you um, in the next podcast. Bye.